Hello, audiobook fans. I'm Andrew Caberline. Welcome to another episode of your favorite audiobook first podcast. Today, Harper Audio presents A-Listers. In this episode, we're laying down the red carpet and inviting you to listen to some of the most notable narrators who've graced our booths and laid down their vocals for our audiobooks. A little later on in the episode, you're going to hear some fantastic reads from the likes of Tom Hanks, Demi Moore, and Debbie Harry. But before we get to that, we're going to chat with Scott Sherritt. Scott is an audiobook director and producer who is known for his creative approach to constructing audiobooks and for the crazy list of names that he's worked with. From Reese Witherspoon to Shaquille O'Neal to the Beastie Boys to the current president of the United States, if you're a celebrity recording an audiobook, you've probably met Scott. And full disclosure, those were just a sample size of the names that I could have picked out from that list. It really is long. But beyond being a superb director and producer, Scott is someone whose creativity shines through when you listen to him talk. If you love hearing how successful people approach their art in different and exciting ways, then you are going to absolutely fall in love with Scott. We chat about his background in music, how he found his way to the world of audiobooks, why trust is so important to his process, and much more. Plus, Scott reluctantly plays a game we call Who Said That? So strap in and enjoy our interview with Scott Sherritt. So I imagine, here's like the, 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 the first question I want to get, thinking of this as almost as like, this is your life, if we can remember that far back. Uh, so I imagine you at like seven or eight in your elementary school and that thing where they always ask like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I imagine that your answer wasn't one day I want to be an audiobook director because they just weren't as popular back then. But you have become this amazing audiobook director and producer. So I want to know, how did you get yourself to there? What was the path that you went on? Oh, gosh. From seven years old? Yeah, until, please start there. Don't, don't take out any days. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it's, uh, I don't know if anybody's purposefully found their way here. Yeah. Um, I, if you've asked that question before, <laughs> I, I'm just not sure. But um, I moved at seven years old. Definitely not. <laughs> I, I've been a musician all my life mm -hmm. and traveled all over. And I moved to New York City in the 90s to do an album with uh, Simon Townsend, who's in The Who, who's Pete Townsend's mm -hmm. brother. And um, it took us about a month to do the record. And then I just stayed in New York. <laughs> I'm an entertainment lawyer uh, who let me stay in his house for a month and watch his pit bull. And so I just um, did that, then found a place to live and started working jobs. But I was a musician and uh, so constantly touring. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to hold down a job. And then I started acting and I joined a theater company called the New York City Players, mm -hmm. which uh, still exists and produce work for um, Richard Maxwell, who's a brilliant writer, playwright, director. And um, he got quite popular and we started touring Europe all the time. Wow. So I'd have a job and say, hey, um, I have to take off a little bit. Uh, can I come back in October? <laughs> and everyone would say, of course not. That's crazy. Get out. Because <laughs> you're uh, asking in June. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> so um, so I've been making records all my life and an engineer and a producer and all that sort of stuff. And a friend of mine um, – told me about a voice studio, a primarily voice studio, where he's in the Jerky Boys. Remember the phone oh prank guys? Oh, my gosh. Wow. So this yeah. guy, Kamal, the big, giant, yeah. Indian-ish guy. And he said, yeah, you got to meet this guy. And this, <laughs> <laughs> so he's, uh was talking about Paul Goodrich at a studio called Merlin Studios in Times Square. So I met him and started working there. And I started doing these voice sessions. And I thought, oh, this is, this is weird. What is this? And... Um, there were a couple of moments where certain directors or producers uh, didn't seem to have a, sh I don't know, a shared vocabulary mm -hmm. with a few sort of uh, movie star types who got upset and ran out. And one of these, you know, as an engineer, you're sort of um, flying the plane and not messing with things. So yeah. uh, it's not your job to really, um, 
you know, manage the session in that way. But I asked during this one session, hey, should I go try to get her back? And they said, sure, if you think you can. And I went out and I talked to this uh, actor who was really upset. But she didn't really understand what they were saying to her. And she, like all actors, take it very personally. Yeah. Like, you hate me. You hate my performance. And it wasn't any of that. But uh, I managed to get her to come back in and they asked me to just take over the session. And then uh, – there was an executive producer in the back who said, hey, would you do this again? <laughs> and I was like, I guess so. And then it swallowed up my entire life. And here <laughs> I am. I like that verbiage of it literally swallowing uh, yeah, your I, entire life. <laughs> it, it seems to be true. Yeah. Um, it's amazing the way – well, first it's amazing that we had a Jerky Boys reference on this podcast now. That See is that? not something I anticipated. Um, but it, it almost also sounds like – you had this skill of almost being like a translator between these different worlds and ways that people think about the art that they were making. Well, that's a, it's a great way to look at it. And I think all art disciplines have that aspect, mm-hmm. even as a viewer, a consumer, a listener, um, what it means to you. And this accuracy, if it, the, if the art is communicating what they'd, the artist intended mm-hmm. or how much of it you have decided for yourself is what you need it to be. And But as it's being made, all those same thought processes, that reciprocal give and take between everybody involved happens throughout the entire thing. Yeah. You know, an audiobook's a long recording too, <laughs> typically compared to other forms. So there's a, it's a short amount of time to build trust. Uh, you you do work with a lot of celebrities with notable people. Um, do you still get starstruck by anyone, or is that like totally unfaze you at this point? Yeah, that's it's an interesting thing. I, I it's it's not un it's not that I'm unfazed, but um, I I have a default switch that just keeps me doing the job. Mm-hmm. And that's relating to the person and making it happen. Like, so I don't really get nervous ever or anything like that. Um, some people I have such admiration for, like I mentioned Elvis Costello, yeah. like 15 year old me peeks his head out every now and then at one of these sessions or in dealing with these people around the sessions. So if I'm, you know, in some crazy situation, like, uh, I don't know, like having lunch at some cafe with one of the Beastie Boys or, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you, know, ta- you know, hearing these crazy stories about, you know, the birth of hip hop and 16-year-old LL Cool J. I'm like, oh, okay. So if young me will go, yeah. this is crazy. And um, You get or, the access. You get to ask them the important questions like, did ladies really love Cool James at 16? And, yeah. they, and they did. The answer is yes. <laughs> but you, you hit on something really important about uh, our job in audio publishing. Um, we spend more time, the directors and producers, the people making the audio, we spend more time with the artists than um, anybody else, more mm-hmm. time than the editors. You know, I'll spend – a week, a sequestered week with someone, just me and them, sometimes an engineer, so, you know, if it's uh, in someone's home, I'll just record it myself or something like that. And uh, so we have a lot of conversations and lunch and dinner or do things and it's a lot of FaceTime. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's never lost on me that, you know, that whoever's hired me, I sort of represent them, yeah. you know, because n- nobody ever knows like, oh, you don't work for Harper yeah. or whatever. They don't know. So they just don't want you to be crazy. <laughs> it's always a, a big thing I'm asked all the time by my bosses here is please don't be crazy. Um, you mentioned uh, working with the Beastie Boys. Uh, Beastie Boys book came out last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've also worked with a lot of musicians in particular. I, I think back to Creative Quest, the Quest Loves book. Um you just recently wrapped up directing Face It, which is the memoir from Debbie Harry of Blondie fame. And uh, I want to know, do you have a special way that you approach working with musicians in particular, especially with your musical background? Uh, 
It could be. I've been a musician my whole life, and so there's a comfort level there. Mm-hmm. Uh, musicians have uh, they have a certain tolerance for discomfort and studio life in general that <laughs> actors aren't prepared for. Yeah. Um, so they tend to be flexible. Uh, but everybody's not the same. You know, Questlove is not Debbie Harry. It's yeah. not, you know, the Beastie Boys. And of course, uh, Beastie Boys, there were 45 different people reading on that in five countries mm-hmm. and many studios. So, uh, you know, everybody's a little bit different. I, at this point, because I'm old, probably, I uh, <laughs> a lot of these people all know each other. Mm-hmm. And so one will say, oh, yeah, 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 Scott did my audiobook. This guy, Scott, you should talk to him or so like with Debbie Harry um, one of my great friends is John Doe from the band X mm-hmm. and we did um, I produced two of his books Under the Big Black Sun which was Grammy nominated with a whole host of LA punks who all know Debbie mm-hmm. and then we recently did More Fun in the New World with a whole host of LA punks who know Debbie and um, actually your very own producer extraordinaire Suzanne Mitchell mm-hmm. came with me to a um Chris Stein, John Doe book event at City Winery here in New York City. And um, that's where we met Chris Stein for the first time, Blondie's guitar player Mm -hmm. and um, Debbie's manager. And Debbie's manager told me, oh, yeah, Elvis's manager told me you're the guy that I should should get you to do Debbie's book. And and coincidentally, uh, Suzanne being wonderful without any of that kind of prompting from Blondie's camp just asked me, all on her own, which was, I was very uh, excited by that. And, um, but, or the Debbie thing goes back in all kinds of crazy ways. Um, I also know Shepard Ferry, the artist who's done Blondie covers and Mm -hmm. their pals. And um, her, one of her bass players, probably her most well-known bass player in Blondie, Nigel Harrison, he and Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols named my first band when I was a kid called The Mindless Thinkers. Which uh, I I don't know who came up with what, but they gave it to <laughs> who me. Who came up together. with mindless and who came up with thinkers? Yeah, yeah. but Steve Jones said mindless fingers, and I said, <laughs> and the fifth, whatever I was fourteen or fifteen said, uh, the mindless fingers. That's terrible. And he said, oh, not fingers, fingers, fingers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but um, so yeah, people sort of talk to each other and they know each other. And coincidentally, Blondie was about to start off on tour mm-hmm. with Elvis Costello, who I know well. And uh, so everybody could say, hey, should we do it this with this guy? Is he, he cool? And, um, and you know, it just finding that thing that musicians that want to try things first know what it is, but then say that Questlove, his book's yeah. Creative Quest, he wanted to – uh, you know, sort of boundaries weren't something necessary for that, you know? So I would let them know there there aren't any rules, but we're going to read these words, <laughs> but we can try all this other magnificent stuff. So um, I I think that, that give and take that um, I guess you establish some trust mm-hmm. that it's going to work out. Because they go, oh, he's done stuff before and it's released. So, because sometimes people get worried, like, hey, we've been doing this for a long time and it's not done. <laughs> it's it's going to be done. Don't worry about it. <laughs> 18 sessions later. Yeah. Um, I'm happy you brought up the idea of uh, having no rules besides we got to read the uh, words for Questlove. Because uh, just as a consumer of audiobooks, I really appreciate in a lot of the work that you do, the different ways you think of what an audiobook experience can be. And the Questlove one, I think, is a great example of that. Uh, in that, oh man, I think I think you're going to explain this better than I do. But in there's a passage where Questlove is explaining hearing a particular band play and breaking down what made it special from every single aspect of the sound that was being produced Mm -hmm. and for someone who's a music layman like me, that just sounds like stats and data. And, uh, what you did with that with replicating exactly what he's talking about musically and like fading in and out and bringing up and down, I felt like, Oh, I actually 
can like have yeah. this conversation with Questlove. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, he he tends he's a great explainer. Yeah. He's constantly sort of a virtual chalkboard behind him, you know, and uh, which is good. But that scene, he was uh, very young. The Roots first mm-hmm. tour when nobody knew who they were of the UK. He and his manager, who's now uh, no longer with us, Rich, went to. Uh, uh, club that was a converted church to see this DJ named Abashanti I, mm-hmm. and uh, who's kind of crazy wild DJ, and he was up in this pulpit in this church, and um, in this clip that you're talking about, this scene, which that's what, uh, those sorts of things felt like scenes, so yeah. that's where that comes into play, where this there's these giant speakers, and he's got an EQ, and Abhishanti I like pulls out all the bass, and it's gone, then all the mids, and it's gone, and then all the highs, and there's just this twinkling, and then it comes back, and he, he flips it over to the other side, the crowd goes wild, and, um, you know, other explanations, and then we add in the, the sickest bass sound, and just bring you through this thing and also put this sort of um i know roots reggae slap mm-hmm. uh, on his voice like when he comes into the scene i like to think of him uh these like dream sequences where he would go off into it and this abhishanti eye it made perfect sense for him to have all this um really great slap yeah and um the dream sequence makes perfect sense is like and that's why analogy, he pulls yeah. out of it at the end and I bring him back into his dry vocal <laughs> um where it makes sense and uh that music is actually the roots but we recorded Questlove at Electric Lady Jimi yeah. Hendrix's studio which is kind of my home away from home and I love it and <sighs> and he's recorded uh, he records almost everything there and has for 20 years. So that's where he's the most at home. Mm-hmm. So it made a big difference with all of this because it wasn't, it just, it, it wouldn't have felt the same to bring him to a voiceover studio. Yeah. Like he's at home there. And that really helped. And uh, this may seem counterintuitive, but we recorded the voice at Electric Lady and then we recorded the music at the Roots Room. At uh, Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. Like they have a little band room, but all mm-hmm. the equipment's wired up and it's ready to go and he has to be there every day. Yeah, that, that helps. So, that helps make um, that scheduling easier. But it's crazy. <laughs> uh, basically with different members of the Roots, uh, all these parts are written by Questlove though. And it's, it's I, gosh, I think there's three, four hours worth of music scattered about yeah. on that. Just thousands of cues. I mean, I worked on that for a long time yeah. <laughs> with his, he's got a great engineer who used to be a chief engineer at Electric Lady years mm-hmm. ago named Steve Mandel, who I worked with and a guy named David Slitsky. These guys are always working with him and have, they have a shorthand with him. So as like, the, he would have some idea and they would know how to quickly execute it. And I would know how to fine tune it because what we're, of where it's going to live here. Mm-hmm in this audiobook and how we're going to make it really effective and where it should land and let's do that. And so it was really collaborative and uh, I'm glad you like that. Yeah. I was going to say, I think you took what, and, and the, what you just said is kind of uh, confirmed this, reconfirmed this to me that you were able to take what makes listening to a Roots album special, like what makes that special and put that on the audiobook too. Yeah, I said that that that's a great way of looking at it as well because I think for Questlove they're not different things. Yeah. Yeah. It's him making music, I'm making music here now for this purpose. It's the same or you know, the same creative uh, mechanisms are at work at both. So, yeah, it was that was just a dream. Thank you guys for you guys are I've done some amazing books for Harper and that's I'm always no, thank you. flattered and excited <laughs> and uh and then I I'm always coming in with sort of kind of crazy ideas about things and yeah when they're not immediately shot down I'm extra happy <laughs> That's nice yeah yeah <laughs> um from your editorial eye or I guess in this case your editorial ear uh what is the biggest difference between a good audiobook and a bad audiobook uh, See, um, that's either really easy or really hard. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, when I started, a lot of people had come over from radio, mm-hmm. which 
it's not that long ago, but, you know, audiobooks have exploded in, you know, 10 years. I think there were 47,000 audiobooks released yeah. last year. It felt like that so, in here. So. Uh, yeah, so, but I think that's the actual number. Yeah. And I think there were about 700 in, you know, 2007 or something mm-hmm. like that. So um, I'm sure there are some bad audiobooks in there or... And, you know, it can come down to everything from quality. For me, it's as long as there's some honesty there, um, like even how we're recording right now, I'm yeah. not worried about this or sonic quality or uh, – although I make sure things sound great all the time. The thing mm-hmm. that's key for me is that it's that it's honest. That's why I really like um, narrators who have been on stage, who have lived life because then they seem to be – they have a lot of tools at their disposal and they can come in and if what they thought was going to happen is different, if the story changes, if something happens, they're flexible. Yeah. So they didn't prepare for a thing. They prepared for life and life is happening. Mm-hmm. So it's like any great discipline, a boxer, you train forever and ever and ever and then when you're out on your feet, you can still do whatever needs to happen. Yeah. And uh, Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, I think so is what Mike Tyson said. That's that exactly way. right. Yeah. And I hate, personally, I hate to hear actors working. <laughs> yeah. Like there's a, it's just, you know, hate's a strong word. I just, I don't know, I'm not interested in it. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to hear anybody working like coming in. That's yeah. why I don't, I actually don't like as a production workflow, I don't like to labor things to death mm-hmm. like that. Um, okay, let's do that line 200 more ways. You yeah, know? so you're not the uh, David Fincher of audiobooks is what you're no, saying. No, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, I mean, something may require that. Sometimes it does. You know, I've, all everything has happened. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I can hear that, and I think most people can hear that when people are really working. If somebody – and some people are just naturally great, but for some narrators who um, came into it like, wow, this sounds great. I can do that. I'll just do it at home. Everyone's doing it. And um, they could be great, and some books, that will work. But you can often hear people. They learn, oh, this is this situation. I'll behave like this. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is – now I'm going to be quiet. And this is the action scene – and, you know, when I first started audiobooks, uh, there was a lot of sound design came over from radio, a lot of redundancies. Like, yeah. you know, there were two shots. Like old style radio, like fi- I sound, I hear like 50s radio plays, well, like the shadow and stuff like that. Oh, that would be great. No, <laughs> like all things, I think in the 80s, lots of crazy things started to happen yeah. to the world sonically. And, uh, and it shows up in all forms of entertainment. From so, too. <laughs> so, yeah, there were, you know, redundancies hitting everything. Okay, you know, they're out in the fields and, you know, people would put the wagon wheel turning and <laughs> wind. And I just always found that like... I don't know if you need all of those. I, I yeah. sort of, I really love to trust the language. This coming from a guy we just talked about, a book where we put a thousand mm-hmm. crazy sound things on there but they were all organic and all made perfect sense to me yeah um and uh well you you have someone talking about a sound and and even if they're explaining it it helps to hear that sound where like just saying like they're on the wagon wheel if it's not important what the wagon wheel sounded like then yeah i don't know that you need to be there and a great a fabulous actor can put you wherever they want you to be Mm -hmm. And they can even do a, a next level thing where you meet them halfway. Yeah. And you're there and that's when they trick you and it's different and it, it starts becoming sort of greasy and you're all in there together and you're not just listening to this thing from this point of safety. It's like the difference between a film and theater mm-hmm. where um, you're safe from what's happening up there yeah. when you're not, when it's reaching right out. And by safe, I don't mean, you know physically safe but there's something that happens when you're invited into the process or you feel like you are yeah i i found that the best audiobooks to me do have something similar to the ephemeral nature of theater that film can't have which is interesting to me because audiobooks aren't ephemeral in that way they are recorded but like maybe it is just the fact that i because now we're listening to it mostly on headphones that it does really feel like someone is in our ear right next to us saying it Maybe that's it, yeah. It could be. I find they succeed the most when it's uh, sort of like what we're doing now. This is why Mm -hmm. podcasts have sort of 
aside from being shorter, have... Uh, oh, we're going for 18 hours today. I don't know if I told you that before yeah. coming in. Oh, Sorry. I thought yeah. it was 18 days. <laughs> but uh, it's, you know, uh, podcasts, the conversational nature of them feels familiar to people. And it feel it has this inviting, this enticing aspect that I'm talking about. Audiobook can do this next level great thing where imagine we had one more person sitting right there. Mm-hmm. Like we're at a diner eating and talking. Uh, our, when your awareness opens up to include this other person and it's not just a bi-directional conversation, mm-hmm. it, it opens up this space that lets listeners in. And I find great narrators – are just able to do that. You're just uh, there. It doesn't feel so like late at night radio. Yeah. And it's just, you know, there's there's lots of uh, theories and thoughts about intimacy in audiobooks. And, you know, 47,000 audiobooks, that's going to be true sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I find it can, um, I don't know, Can it's not as inclusive. And a great actor can be what you would think of as intimate. And it's still there. It's accessible. Yeah. It's, this, it's a really great – audiobooks are – this long-form audio, it's an incredible medium. It's got such opportunities. Um, what else you got? Those were the prepared questions that I had. I always like to ask those. There's something in particular that I didn't bring up that you'd like to, to talk about or plug or do anything like that? No. it's. A, I mean that's not particularly, but um, – or in particularly as well. <laughs> Indirectly, is there something you want to talk about? Well, there, I mean, there are a lot of amazing Harper titles that I've worked on that mm-hmm. have a lot of um, crazy, insane things. Like I think I sent you like the Telegraph Avenue. Yeah. Clark Peters singing for uh, those that may be listening and don't know. Telegraph Avenue is a wonderful novel by Michael Chabon, mm-hmm. who is um, – just a scary, incredible writer. Yeah. Chapter three is a five thousand word grammatically correct sentence. Talk about, and it feels natural yeah. and not like he was planning it. Wow! Um, but <laughs> it, it's a great novel, and Clark Peters, uh, famous from The Wire, but mm-hmm. many things. Great actor. He was the narrator, but Clark also was a singer. He's been lived in London since the 70s. And uh, he's that deep voice on the song Boogie Night. You yeah. got to keep on dancing. <laughs> and uh, I knew that. And I was very excited about it. And um, I asked our executive producer, I said, hey, we have to put some music on this and tune. And I had this little melody. And I, I asked Clark if he would do it. And threw him on one track, then the next, then the next. And he did these great little harmonies and I built a song on it. I, And that's in the intro and outro. Mm-hmm. It actually breaks down for Clark's solo vocal part, which uh, I highly suggest. Uh, I, I recommend the book. Yeah. But if anyone hears that, that song was you know created solely for the book. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of those amazing moments on Harper titles. I mean, there's Amy Poehler, you know, oh, I, when I was a kid, I used to sing this song and yeah. she sang it like this and I went and put a Wurlitzer under it. <laughs> and then, um, you know, there's uh, a Christopher Moore book, uh, The Serpent in Venice. Yeah. They have a, you know, a almost six minute overture that a great composer friend of mine put at the beginning of that. And uh, they're just, I can go on and on. There's so many great <laughs> titles and, uh, always you guys have been great about letting me do these kind of kooky things like okay i you know what i'd like to do yeah. and you guys say sure well, let me tell you me personally scott i love kooky i live for kooky yes um i'm happy you mentioned all those titles because you've recorded a lot of people saying a lot of thoughts from their life um and today we're gonna see if you can remember those thoughts oh forget it in a game we call who said that? Um, so I'm going to read you a direct quote from a title that you have directed or produced. And then I'm going to give you some multiple choice options so you're not just like dangling in the wind for who this uh, quote is attributed to. And we'll see how many you can guess correctly. Oh, I have to plead the fifth right away. <laughs> right away. Um, the White House says I'm not allowed to answer any questions. My brain is so full of too many words from too many books. If I get any right, I'll be shocked. But um, 
Oh, I, I love your self-confidence in this. I would, this is kind of <laughs> I would stop listening right now. <laughs> Anybody. Yeah. So are you ready to play? No. Wonderful. Number one, who said this? Quote, back then, I didn't know acting was a job, really. All I knew was I liked roller skating in my driveway and making people sit and watch. End quote. Your options. Is this A, Rob Lowe, B, Amy Poehler, or C, Aziz Ansari? Oh, it's definitely Amy. Definitely Amy. Yeah. So your final answer. That's this my is my this is my Regis Philbin, I guess, or whoever is hosting yeah. who wants to be a millionaire. Yeah, that's at this my point. that's that sounds like Amy to me, Amy Poehler. You sure yeah. it's not one of the other members of Parks and Rec that we listed there? It uh, it could be. <laughs> Maybe they might have also rollerbladed. All right, let's see what the answer is to number one. Honestly, I don't think I had a burning desire to act at that young age. Back then, I didn't know acting was a job, really. All I knew was I liked roller skating in my driveway and making people sit and watch. That is correct. That was Amy Poehler. So you're you're one for one. You are uh, overshooting your expectations already. Yeah. Like, and you got four more left to go. Uh, no, no. I'll take the money and... And run? Yeah. Run, yeah. Um, unfortunately, that's not an option on this game show. Uh, number two. Quote, my introduction to hip-hop, the very thing that would one day make me rich and famous, came as a result of me giving up something I loved for someone else's, for someone else's desire. Is that A, Daryl McDaniels, uh, known as DMC? Is that B, Michael Diamond, Mike D? Or is it C, Adam Horowitz, Ad-Rock? No, that's definitely DMC <laughs> and the place to be. <laughs> My introduction to hip-hop, the very thing that would one day make me rich and famous, came as a result of me giving up something I love for someone else's desires. That is correct. Uh, that was Daryl. Uh, that is from 10 Ways to Not Commit Suicide, which is a fantastic book. Uh, I love Daryl. Uh, yeah, I was... Uh, I've met him a few times over the years, and I've always, yeah, I just, I mean, I love Run DMC, mm-hmm. and uh, I never met Jay, but I know Run, and uh, and Daryl, who I've met a couple times, and worked with it like 10 years ago, and then recently for you guys, which yeah. is a thrill. He's, uh, yeah, he's amazing, and uh, I got to photograph him, too, mm-hmm. and, which is great. I, I love Daryl. All right, moving on to number three. You're pitching a perfect game so far. Quote, finally, I stood up and stared at my reflection. I looked like a concentration camp inmate, and I wanted to die. This is our least uh, fun quote, I will say. Yeah. Uh, A, George Takai, B, Willem Dafoe, or C, Alan Cumming? That would be Alan Cumming, and, but George Takai. Is how you say it. Oh, I'm I'm upset at myself for getting yeah, that wrong can, now. Oh, oh. oh my. Yeah. Oh. But George yeah, Decay. But that's Alan. Finally, I stood up and stared at my reflection. I looked like a concentration camp inmate. And I wanted to die. That is correct. That is Alan Cumming. You were making short work of this game so far. Uh, normally, people don't do that well at games on this show. So, like, you you might be, like, the grand champion of this. <laughs> so... Two side stories about yeah. that. <laughs> so I don't know if you remember this, but uh, Alan was in Cabaret yeah. during that time. And um, that n- the night before we started his book, um, his memoir uh, in New York here at his show, who was it? Uh, gosh, what's his name? The actor. Uh, from someone else from Cabaret? Or? No, no, no. The, 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 uh, the crazy kid. He went there drunk. He was putting Oh, Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, he was drunk. He's putting things in, like, uh, old lady's hair. Oh, and, I remember this and, now. Yeah, he, like, Al- yeah. Alan walked by, and it's like assless chaps or whatever in character. And and uh, Shia slapped him on the oh. ass really hard. Please don't do that, people listening, if you're going to yeah, theater. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't do Don't touch th- the actors. Don't touch that. Don't touch Alan. Yeah. Um, but so he said, Alan has like security and like sent, just go get him out of here. And they took him and threw him out on the street. And <laughs> it and uh, the police came, he got arrested. And it was, but there's so much drama about that. So this is the next Dang. morning when that broke. <laughs> I see it, but it, it's, uh, it was really neat. And 
the second part of that story, which mm-hmm. is actually the first part of that story, is I flew in from L.A. on the red eye as I was working with Herbie Hancock at his house. Yeah. And I had to leave Herbie when he wanted to start playing music and go, oh, I have to catch a plane. And it's like, so 15-year-old me was really dying at that point. And I just, I don't remember anything, but I do remember leaving Herbie to have to take a red eye to get to New York to Alan Cohen. And then the news breaking that and you're like, oh, all this, crap. this funny stuff with Shia LaBeouf <laughs> last night. But thank you for remembering uh, who that was. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I feel like he's of my generation, um, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, number four, quote, that's probably how I ruined my back. It turns out pro wrestling is a tough sport, and it's not the best thing in the world for your body, end quote. Is this A, WWE Hall of Fame member Donald Trump, B, Shaquille O'Neal, or C, Debbie Harry? That would be Debbie. That's probably how I ruined my back. It turns out pro wrestling is a tough sport, and it's not the best thing in the world for your body. Yes, it is Debbie Harry. Probably the least likely on that group to uh, be a pro wrestler. But she loves wrestling. It's it's insane. <laughs> yeah, she's a big old school wrestling mm-hmm. fan. Yeah, has many stories. Um, you might get the perfect, the elusive perfect game here. Well, this is like a Fox News interview. You're making it really easy. <laughs> Softballs here. Don't reveal my secrets. Um, so number five. I was 11 when I came to the United States with no goal more ambitious than to become a typical American teenager. Was this A, Madeleine Albright, B, Sir Patrick Stewart, or C, Kate Mulgrew? Oh, that's uh, Madam Secretary. No? Did I get it wrong? I was 11 when I came to the United States with no goal more ambitious than to become a typical American teenager. That was correct, Scott. Oh, my You gosh. got the perfect score, the elusive perfect score. That, uh, that was wonderful. I feel like the, the connections you have made with everyone while recording uh, bared fruit in getting a perfect score on this meaningless uh, game. <laughs> well, it means a lot to me that even, even under these very friendly circumstances that I was able to get it right, well, thank you so much, Scott. This yeah, has been you, a fantastic Andrew. joy for me, and I hope for you as well. And I would love to talk to you again sometime. Okay, yeah, I'd love it too. Thanks so much for having me. A big thank you again to Scott Sherritt. Face It by Debbie Harry, which Scott directed, is on sale now. We're going to close this episode with some celebrity audiobook clip highlights starting with Debbie Harry reading from Face It. After that, you'll hear Tom Hanks reading the opening minutes to Ann Patchett's richly moving novel, The Dutch House. And finally, you'll hear from Demi Moore's memoir, Inside Out. All of these wonderful audiobooks are on sale now. Enjoy. I don't like to dwell on the past. You do something... If you're lucky, you learn from it, and you move on. What was I learning? How to express myself, how to get better at what I was doing, where I fit into the picture, how to be in control of my own life, how to better express myself? Yes, that happened. How to improve my performance and better position myself? Yes, that too. But the control part? Not so much. Some kind of control you've got when you've signed your life away on so many dotted lines and they've strapped you to the head of a rocket. The lesson was really the same as it ever was. Survive and find a way to create while you're hurtling through space. Strapped to a rocket and ready to be launched, or as Chris said, chasing the carrot. This was that time when we really took off. I mean, took off. It was a riotous, breathless, restless, crazy period, much of it a blur now from the speed with which it all unfolded. After the release of our first album, we played a bunch of shows in New York, and then in February, 77, we hit the road for the first time. And we stayed on the road. And stayed. First, we went to L.A., where we were put up at the Bel Air Sands, 
our manager had made a deal with the owner. Free rooms in return for some free shows. The shows were supposed to take place on a cruise ship. When it came down to it, however, the ship was declared unseaworthy and the permit for a concert was denied. In the meantime, each night, we drove in our rented van from the Bel Air to the Whiskey Ogogo on Sunset. But before the shows, we first had to sign a contract. Peter Leeds, the Wind in the Willows old manager, had come back into our lives, offering to manage Blondie. He wasn't the first to make that offer. Before him, our neophyte managers were these cute little potheads from the Bronx. Oh, God, they were so adorable and funny and crazy about Blondie. They came down to CBGB's, these two munchkin guys dressed like 1970s disco boys with wide lapel shirts and long collars and flared pants. But somehow, we were still flattered that they were paying attention to us. Then they said, we want to manage you. God knows why. There was no contract or anything. They just started preparing different things, posters or buttons or T-shirts, and I think they tried to book us somewhere. Leeds's bolder strategy was to tell us that he'd booked us these gigs in L.A. Unfortunately, his strategy worked. At that time, the whole L.A. scene was wide open. The Whiskey A Go-Go had been famous in the 60s as a platform for so many great rock bands, but was apparently feeling the competition from the new, fancier clubs that were opening up. The Whiskey was looking for something fresh and new to restore it to its former glory. It was the right place at the right time to make an impact, and we really wanted to do these shows. Wanted to do them so much that we signed a five-year management contract with Leeds. Los Angeles was all we could have hoped for. It was a big turnaround for Blondie. Rodney Bingenheimer, a local influential DJ with an uncanny knack for finding new music, who had his own radio show on K-Rock, flipped out over us played us all the time, and had us on his show. In spite of its being commercial, K-Rock was more like a college station, and Rodney had complete control of his playlist. He was known for playing music from the hip new kids and helping those bands to break out. There was even an L.A. Blondie fan club that was presided over by Jeffrey Lee Pierce, a sweet kid who later would have a great band called The Gun Club, which Chris would end up producing. Jeffrey had dyed his hair blonde to look like mine. The first time we played in L.A., people were still dressing like hippies, and here we were, dressed in black or in our little mod outfits. But the audiences really responded to us. When we went back to the Whiskey to do more shows later that year, it looked like everyone in the audience had been raiding the secondhand stores and the girls were wearing cute mod mini skirts instead of those floor-length floral things. Tom Petty opened for us the first week. The second week, we played with the Ramones, which was when things got crazier. The first time my father brought Andrea to the Dutch house, Sandy, our housekeeper, came to my sister's room and told us to come downstairs. Your father has a friend he wants you to meet, she said. Is it a work friend, Maeve asked. She was older and so had a more complex understanding of friendship. Sandy considered the question. I'd say not. Where's your brother? Window seat, Maeve said. Sandy had to pull the draperies back to find me. Why do you have to close the drapes? I was reading. Privacy, I said. Though at eight, I had no notion of privacy. I liked the word and I liked the boxed-in feel the draperies gave when they were closed. As for the visitor, it was a mystery. Our father didn't have friends, at least not the kind who came to the house late on a Saturday afternoon. I left my secret spot and went to the top of the stairs to lie down on the rug that covered the landing. I knew from experience I could see into the drawing room by looking between the newel post and the first baluster if I was on the floor. There was our father in front of the fireplace with a woman, and from what I could tell, they were studying the portraits of Mr. and Mrs. Vanubake. I got up and went back to my sister's room to make my report. It's a woman, I said to Maeve. Sandy would have known this already. 
Sandy asked me if I'd brushed my teeth, by which she meant, had I brushed them that morning. No one brushed their teeth at four o'clock in the afternoon. Sandy had to do everything herself because Jocelyn had Saturdays off. Sandy would have laid the fire and answered the door and offered drinks, and on top of all that, was now responsible for my teeth. Sandy was off Mondays. Sandy and Jocelyn were both off Sundays because my father didn't think people should be made to work on Sundays. I did, I said, because I probably had. Do it again, she said, and brush your hair. The last part she meant for my sister, whose hair was long and black and as thick as ten horsetails tied together. No amount of brushing had ever made it look brushed. Once we were deemed presentable, Maeve and I went downstairs and stood beneath the wide archway of the foyer, watching our father and Andrea watch the Van Hubakes. They didn't notice us, or they didn't acknowledge us, hard to say, and so we waited. Maeve and I knew how to be quiet in the house, a habit born of trying not to irritate our father, though it irritated him more when he felt we were sneaking up on him. He was wearing his blue suit. He never wore a suit on Saturdays. For the first time, I could see that his hair was starting to gray in the back. Standing next to Andrea, he looked even taller than he was. It must be a comfort having them with you, Andrea said to him, not of his children, but of his paintings, Mr. and Mrs. Van Hubake, who had no first names that I had ever heard, were old in their portraits, but not entirely ancient, they both dressed in black and stood with an erect formality that spoke of another time. Even in their separate frames, they were so together, so married. I always thought it must have been one large painting that someone cut in half. Andrea's head tilted back to study those four cunning eyes that appeared to follow a boy with disapproval, no matter which of the sofas he chose to sit on. Maeve, silent, stuck her finger in between my ribs to make me yelp, but I held on to myself. We had not yet been introduced to Andrea, who, from the back, looked small and neat in her belted dress, a dark hat no bigger than a saucer pinned over a twist of pale hair. Having been schooled by nuns, I knew better than to embarrass a guest by laughing. Andrea would have had no way of knowing that the people in the paintings had come with a house, that everything in the house had come with a house. It may sound strange, but I remember the time I spent in the hospital in Merced, California, when I was five years old, as almost magical. Sitting up in bed in my soft pink fleecy nightgown, waiting for my daily round of visitors, doctors, nurses, my parents, I felt completely comfortable. I'd already been there for two weeks and was determined to be the best patient they'd ever seen. There in the clean, bright room, everything felt like it was under control. There were dependable routines at the hospital enforced by real grown-ups. In those days, there was a sense of awe around the doctors and nurses. Everyone revered them, and to be in their midst felt like a privilege. Everything made sense. I liked that there was a way I could behave that would yield predictable responses. I'd been diagnosed with kidney nephrosis, a life-threatening condition about which very little was known. It had really been studied only in boys to the extent that it was studied at all. Basically, it's a retentive disease in which your filtering system isn't doing its job. I remember being terrified when my genitals swelled up and I showed my mom and saw her reaction. Pure panic. She got me in the car and rushed me to the hospital, where I ended up staying for three months. My aunt taught fourth grade, and she'd had her entire class make get-well cards on construction paper with crayons and markers which my parents delivered that afternoon. I was excited by the attention from older kids, kids I didn't know. But when I looked up from the brightly colored cards, I saw my parents' faces. For the first time, I could feel their fear that I might not make it. I reached over and touched my mother's hand and said, everything will be okay, mommy. She was just a kid too. She was only 23 years old. My mother, Virginia King, was a teenager who weighed 100 pounds when she got pregnant with me just out of high school in Roswell, New Mexico. Really, she was a little girl. She labored in pain for nine hours, 
only to be knocked unconscious at the last minute, right before I came into this world. Not the ideal first attachment experience for either of us. There was a part of her that did not really ground in reality, which meant that she was able to think outside the box. She came from poverty, but she didn't have a poverty mindset. She didn't think poor. She wanted us to have the best. She would never have allowed a generic brand of anything in our house. Not cereal, not peanut butter, not laundry detergent. She was generous, expansive, welcoming. There was always room for one more person at the table. And she was confident in an easygoing kind of way, not a stickler for rules. Growing up, I was aware that Ginny was different. She didn't seem like other moms. I can picture her in the car driving us to school, smoking a cigarette with one hand and putting her makeup on perfectly with the other, without even looking in the mirror. She had a great figure. She was athletic and had worked as a lifeguard at Bottomless Lake State Park near Roswell. She was also strikingly attractive, with bright blue eyes, pale skin, and dark hair. She was meticulous about her appearance, no matter what the circumstances. On our yearly trip to my grandmother's, she would make my dad stop three-quarters of the way there so she could put in her curlers and have her hair just right by the time we got into town. My mom went to beauty school, though she never turned it into a career. She wasn't a fashion queen, but she knew how to put a look together with natural flair. And she was always reaching for whatever was glamorous. I mean, she got my name from a beauty product. Harper Audio Presents is a presentation of HarperCollins Publishers. Our staff includes Beth Ives, Fameta Sawyer, Nathan Rossborough, and me, Andrew Caberline. Follow us on Instagram at Harper Audio and reach out to us on Twitter at Harper Audio Presents.